If you're going through dark times, you're a very lucky person because I can tell you I might have gone through a hundred of those that you're going through. Now, I don't know whether it was Tiger Woods said it. I may be misquoting him. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Tiger, if I am. But I think Tiger alluded to the fact that it's the person that can take the most pain that succeeds. And I think that's probably in there somewhere with me, that if you can stand up, if you can stay in that flame long enough, it will burn itself out and you'll go through to the next level. You've burned the dross off. So what I say to people that have got fear or that, you know, money problems, my goodness, I can give you a lecture on that. Um, having nothing is a great place to be because you only have one place to go and that's up. You won't stay in that place. That's not the universe. The universe abhors, abhors a vacuum. It wants you to succeed. Every living person on this planet is a part of the cog, is a part of everybody. Uh, you can't be a Tiger Woods without 10,000 people behind you turning the machinery. Welcome back to the Golfer's Journal podcast presented by Titleist, the number one ball in golf. I'm Tom Coyne. And hey, speaking of Titleist, we all know about the Pro V1 and Pro V1X and how they are the most played balls in the game. But did you know the Titleist has also completely reimagined and re-engineered its AVX ball? The AVX is a great premium performance alternative to the Pro V1 and Pro V1X. And it's going to give you a very low long game spin and iron spin, lower flight, longer distance, especially with your irons and improved spin and scoring control into the greens. It's got a new softer feel and is available in the white or the lovely high optic yellow. So level up your game with the new Titleist AVX and as always, visit Titleist.com to learn more. Now today's podcast was report was recorded and reported, I suppose, above the Link Soul Lab in Oceanside, California, where a very special golfer, teacher, pro, author has his own laboratory of sorts. So if you read The Man Riding Clouds by Daniel Riley in Golfer's Journal 18, which you should, brilliant story, you'll know why we felt compelled to get down to Peter Beam's workspace and get him in front of a microphone. I don't think I've had a conversation on this podcast, or, or maybe anywhere, really, that touches on so many big ideas from The Secret to Golf, which he gives us here in this podcast. You're going to get it, and it's a pretty simple move, and I've been working on it and it's start, it's starting to click, which is pretty cool. We also get a from from golf to a glimpse of of the afterlife. I mean, I've I've been thinking about this conversation ever since we stopped recording it. So I hope you have that same experience as well. So thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing and making it possible for us to bring you content like this. Remember, the March referral game is still going strong, and the winners going to be receiving one of our custom Golfers Journal Scotty Cameron putters, priceless quite literally priceless. We don't sell them. You have to win one. And each referral gets you another entry into the drawing and your referral code that you should share far and wide. It's waiting for you right there in your member locker on golfersjournal.com. So thank you, Link Soul, for turning us on to Peter Beams and these uncommon golf stories. And thanks as well to all the other sponsors from the magazine and their Titleist, Scotty Cameron, Oakley, Footjoy, Links and Kings, and Charles Schwab. 
We hope you're enjoying number 19 as well. If you don't subscribe, 19, the first hole of our, our second round, I suppose, it's a great place to start. 19 is packed with great stuff. And you should subscribe because then you get to spend some more time with a man like the one we're about to hear from, Peter Beams, whose adventures should hopefully inspire us all to try to live a little larger, a little more fearlessly, and perhaps a little more generously as well. Well, Peter, thank you so much for taking the time. I see you there. What a setting and what a setup. What a beautiful backdrop. Uh, everything. I see a little Beatles. I see a lot of art. Uh, I see some golf swings. Where? Tell us where you are. Describe your your surroundings for us. Uh, I'm in Oceanside. Know. I'm in the office and the lab of Link Soul, the incredible clothing company, which I believe is a sponsor of your amazing magazine. A great friend of the Golfer's Journal, indeed. Yes. Um, and this has been the hub of a, a book that I've been working on for 25 years, The Boy Who Rode Clouds. Yes, I want to talk about The Boy Who Rode Clouds. Uh, and it's very cool to see this setting. I've read about it in Golfer's Journal 18. Great story yeah. by Daniel Riley uh, called The Man Riding Clouds about That's right. your extraordinary life and the adventures that you've had in golf and otherwise, mm -hmm. and it is a story that is almost hard to believe. So, yes. Right? It is yeah, when you put I it all together. I, I agree with you. So I just wanted to start off asking you, you know, in reading the story, I think um, Dan did an extraordinary job of, of fitting a lot into a pretty tight space. Uh, yeah. And, you know, obviously, you know, there could be a, a book written about your life that could be many, many pages. So there were just some sort of tidbits and, and, and hints of stories that we, we don't get the full tale. And I'd love to talk to you about some of them today. As you read, uh, were there any stories or anything that you wish got to be in that story in the Golfer's Journal that, you know, we just weren't able to fit no, or didn't again, make it? Hundreds, hundreds. Well, give me your favorite. Oh, well, let, let's start with the... Uh... Goodness knows when it was. I mean, always it's a wondrous thing. I couldn't get from Sydney to Melbourne to play in the PGA. And I'm thinking this had to be about 78, 79. Anyway, eventually uh, I was like a 17-hour trip. I, I ended up, uh, a student picked me up somewhere and took me close to where those people had disappeared at the picnic at Hanging Rock. And he lulled me to sleep with the most incredible uh, harp play and gave me an amazing meal. And I got up the next day and eventually I got a lift with a trucker. And his big thing was listening to the Macquarie Sports Net Network. And he stopped somewhere and he got two Cokes and two hamburgers. And I thought, this is it. I haven't eaten in like 24 hours. And uh, he scoffed them both. He didn't give anything to me. Well, so a week later, 10 days later, for the first time, a guy put cans on me and left me in the studio doing the color commentating to the PGA in Australia. So I was on Macquarie Station. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? From a truck driver to a Macquarie Station. I wanted to say to that big fat truck driver out there, 
this is that guy you picked up and wouldn't share your food with, but I didn't. Right? And here, yes. here I am. Here I am. Commentating. Yeah. Uh, and your life has ranged from, you know, playing, starting at a young age, playing golf alongside some of the best to ever play the game and, and playing it very well yourself mm-hmm. um, to, and, and it's brought you over here to, to California, splitting your time between California, New York, elsewhere. Yeah. Um, so in the story, we meet you, you're in, you're in New York. Uh, and I'll, and I'll be going back there about the 27th of March. Same okay. place. Yeah. I was going to say you're upstate New York, right? Yeah. I was the head pro or the head teacher or the head bottle washer at Ives Hill Golf Club. And it was an absolute uh, paradise for me. But unfortunately, it was closed because of uh, the pandemic. Uh, so I very kindly other golf courses let me go and teach. They weren't uh, bad about that. And I live with the uh, most amazing Johnny Spazano, who is the voice of upstate New York radio. Um, he's on multiple stations and he gives me a home. And uh, there's so much love there and so much joy. He has a pizza oven in his uh, kitchen. So, I mean, it's a lot of jollity and, and wonder. <laughs> And that's a theme that certainly runs through the stories, the way that people gravitate towards you and these relationships that become not just friendships, but where you're, you know, where you're living um, with them or spending time, yeah. you know, where, what do you think, why do you think that is that people gravitate towards you in that way that, you know, that you've become the professor, that you have the upstairs of the Link Soul yeah. Laboratory? Uh, what is it about you that, um, that, that people I think that, find so compelling. I, I think the pain I went through when I was eight years old, being sent really? away to board. Yeah, being sent away to boarding school, being sent away from love, and crying for at least three weeks every night. You know, to the point where they would send me to the dormitory because I was making such a noise. And people really? get through that. The people get through that in different ways. I I didn't handle it very well. How did you get through it? Um, loneliness begets uh, a lot of different things in life. It gives you uh, independence. And uh, there's a story in itself. Uh, the PGA um, at Royal Melbourne, I got into a tussle with the uh, secretary or whoever else it was. And He'd lock my clubs in a, a barn and I couldn't get them. And I, I think I said to him, come on, pick your feet up, get this open. And he, re- he reported me to the PGA to the point where I came up in front of a 12 or 16 Australian pros and Peter Thompson. And Peter Thompson told me, he said, you know, you've nearly brought about the demise of the PGA with, uh, I think it was can't remember who backed it. It was some big telegraph company. He said, what should I do with you, Peter? I said, well, I think I've got to go and apologize to the secretary. He said, that's a good idea. So we, we both marched in. I took my hat off, put out my hand. I said, I apologize to you, Mr. Secretary. He wouldn't take my handshake. And Peter, really? m- much to his goodness and kindness, he said, Mr. Secretary, the man's put his hand out. Shake it. And uh, everything was was okay. But Peter Thompson was a great man, a great man in my life. Helped me a great deal as he as he's helped so many people in the game. 
a lot of great men in your life. Peter Thompson. Yes. I know Gary yeah. Player. Oh, um, you know, comes amazing. up in the story and, and yeah. was a big part of your life as well. Can yes. you want to talk about him a little bit? Well, when I first went to South Africa, uh, he knew, you know, that I was over there with nothing. He had me to his house um, at Wanderers. He gave me shirts and slacks. And uh, I was there in the office when Mark McCormack told him that uh, he must not come back to, to uh, America because his life had been threatened. And Gary said, I'm coming. And that was, wow. you remember that when he, the ice was thrown in him and all sorts of stuff. But Gary Player has been consistent to me, you know, for my whole life. I, I, he called me up uh, not so long ago. I think he got a hold in one of the Masters. And I'm at a bar and, he, I, you know, I hear this voice. Pete, this is Giddy. Giddy? I said, who is Giddy? Giddy Player. <laughs> and uh, he taught me so much about the game, so much about the game, as did Bobby Locke as did Peter Thompson. There are some monumental secrets in this game, which, uh, you know, if, if people would listen, they'd get a lot better, a lot quicker, but people don't. That's human nature. Peter, we're listening. We could take a, <laughs> we'll take a few of those monumental secrets if you have any on, uh, at your fingertips right now. For well, sure. you know, I mean, Bobby Locke taught me that you didn't have to have the big drive. Locke didn't hit the ball very long. I had asked Peter Thompson in New Zealand, actually. I said, Peter, what, what do you have to do to win the British Open? He goes, beams down the middle on the green in the hole. And Locke and Thompson were very much the same. Their whole game was based around getting the ball on the fairway. And you know what? Locke always said to me, if you can't breathe easily hitting a ball, then it's not right. You know, we have DeChambeau, who's kind of shattered the, the genteel way of playing the game. I'm not saying he's wrong, but I'm also saying that let's take Peter Thompson from 51 to 58. He's never out of the first two of the British Open. That is mm. amazing. That is crazy. Who's got a record like that? And it comes from swinging the club gently. Uh, I think one of the great swingers we had him here um, for the Wishbone tournament, which Xander Shoffley was here, and uh, Freddie Couples. And Freddie mm -hmm. Couples has got that same smooth swing. Very smooth. So I like that. So breathing. And, I, you know, in the story it alludes to, you know, your book, uh, yeah. uh, which uh, I'm excited to check out. And um, – in it is it in that book that you give out your secret to golf? It, it, it oh, in the, knowing walk, the secret. To you golf mean walk it. through the par? You're talking yeah. about walk through the par. Mm -hmm. um, well, I mean, one of the most amazing things about golf is, and I'll give this to everybody because I, I've nothing to hide at this age, is that I had seen what appeared to me to be a really good way of playing, but I. I didn't go after it because it was Harry Varden. What would Harry Varden know? You know, as a young person, you didn't look to older people and realize if he'd won six British Opens, he knew something that we didn't. Then I looked at Walter Hagen. He had the same move. Then I looked at Baron Nelson. He had the same move. I looked at Ben Hogan. He had the same move. I look at Peter Thompson. He had the same move. It took me to now, this time, at Goat Hill, where we play, 
to finally put the last piece of the jigsaw puzzle into the swing. So that's What's pretty the move? frightening. That the is, move is, that is the move. The move is that from the bull. Straight back with your hands. No. Freddie Couples has his hand like that. When you take the club back, you take your hands first. You leave the club where it's at. So you've so got this. You've got this whip effect. So you take. So what it does, it unfreeze. I was always trying to be Gary Player and Ben Hogan. I'd read the whole thing wrong, and I was stiff like uh -huh. Bryson. Yeah. You can't do that. You need a flailing motion because you're soft. Because ah. you want the club to do the work. You don't want your now with the technology that they have. Um, let technology be your friend. You can play easy golf and hit the ball vast distances with this amazing technology. I still use persimmon. I'm hitting my persimmon driver now about 250, which is a long way for an elder statesman. But this, oh yeah, it is. This, this taking the club back like this changed my life. You can ask anybody around that I play. Peter, you, now. Some people will be able to watch this uh, on our YouTube, on video. Yeah. For those who are just listening, can you describe in words what that move is? You weren't able to well, see what yeah, you're doing on the yeah. camera. Yeah, so uh, it's very simple. You hold on to the club. You've got a, a bit stronger hold with your left hand. And what happens is leave the club behind the ball, but initiate the backswing with the wrists mm. so that you're, you're – hands and arms are starting first and the golf club is still behind the ball and if you notice most of the great golfers in my time they always had the driver leaning backwards now with the iron the iron is leaning forward so there's two different ways of setting up to the ball but certainly with that with the club and the hands back billy casper did it you can drag your hands back holding that cup, which is none of what I'm saying is in vogue. What's in vogue is Dustin Johnson shutting the club at the top. Hey, yeah. if you're strong, it's a great way of playing, but it's very, very difficult for most of us. We don't have that forearm strength to hold. Arnold Palmer used to be shut at the top. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he's even said, oh, I played better when I got a little bit more open. Everybody's got a different way of doing it. The thing about golf and being this age, you've gone, you've gone through so many different swings. You've gone through being Gary Player. You've gone through being, you know, Sam Snead, all these different ways of doing it. And so oh. I'm just saying at the end of my golf, uh, it's given me another, if I live 10 years, it's given me another 10 years of great golf. I am playing as good a golf right now as I did probably when I was 23. Do you have a name for this move? Is it just, it, it's sort of creating like a whip effect, I imagine, yeah. with your, with, um, yeah. No, I don't think you need, a, I, I just think it's the okay. last piece of the jigsaw. It's like I, I saw it uh, when I was young and I disavowed it. This yeah. is old people's golf. You know, Walter Hagen did it. Mm -hmm. Tremendously. It's obviously Bobby Jones did it. So. Wow. Because I just spent the last week mm -hmm. trying to shut my clothes face yeah and really hit the ball with by just ripping my trunk yeah. all the way around but somebody you know, with, you know, you know with, with no offense to you but somebody as yourself i'm sure you're not playing seven days a week 
So you need something like an opening and closing of the club head, which is easy to do. There's no strain. I think what I'm saying is you, you need to be able to breathe. You need to get to the end of 18 holes and feel as fresh as you were on the first tee. With all these different shut face moves, uh, it's very difficult to, um, you know, to feel uh, sprightly at the end of, at the end of the round. I'm going to be working on something new this week in my swing. Sure, that 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 is uh, that's absolutely wonderful. Another the, <clears throat> another uh, Im- important thing about the game is I've got the best set of clubs I think ever made. David Graham, Jack Nicholas, they're probably ten thousand dollars. People laugh, but they're so pure. McGregor's, and uh, they're totally the worst clubs that I could play because they're a 400 S um, you know, that's like a telegraph pole, Right. but I had to learn because I loved how they looked. I had to learn how to play them. I'm beginning to understand how to play them. So I've adapted my game to do it. And what I did was um, this is for everybody who loves the game. And this is not me. This is Tom Watson. I took my two iron out this McGregor VIP. And um, first of all, I could probably hit it 170 yards. Through diligence of practice, just three or four balls going up and down with the golf cart to the green. I am now hitting that green 200, over 200 with that two iron beautifully. It just took a little bit of application because the, the people who know the professionals would say that shaft is no good for an old man. Uh, but I thought, you know, because the clubs are so perfect, there's got to be a way of learning how to do it. Mo Norman had telegraph poles in his clubs. I knew Mo Norman pretty well, and I got to hit some of his clubs. You know, I couldn't hit them. Now I could because I've learned what I have to do to do it. So I'm not saying people should go to stiff clubs. Right. But I'm saying they're all different factions of, you know, a ladies club, a senior club, an R shaft, whatever they have nowadays. And they have tremendous technology. I play stiff shafts in my Jack Nicholas um, woods um, and uh, I've adapted and I play I play really well. I'm I'm <laughs> cock a hoop on how I play. I'm impressed. <laughs> I'm impressed. Well, I mean, I'm impressed. Two irons at all. Yeah. Yes. What did you with with the, with an extra stiff shaft? Yeah. What was it? How did you know? You say you taught yourself. Yeah. What did you well, teach yourself? Well, that was the big thing. I made my hold stronger, and I, I reading that book, the the uh, Masters of Golf, Altman and somebody else. If you've got that book, you should have a look at it. Have you got that book? I don't. I okay. Will soon, it's uh, all Altman and. Um, the guy that did the Jack Nicholas stuff. Okay. Uh, and anyway, that again, that because it puts your hands in the correct position at the top. And then now the second thing is don't try to hit it. That's how you get it. When you uh-huh. take the hit out of the, out of the swing, now you can use the rhythm and now you right. can get that ball to go. But the problem is, as golfers, we want to hit that ball hard and we ruin all that timing. So I don't try to hit it. I start off, I say, hey, if I can hit this two iron 
155 yards. Let me start with that. And then it kind of cranks up and then I start getting the whole rhythm. Now, that is the hardest thing, right? Don't hit. Yes. No, uh, don't hit. You know, there's that ball. And and all the people that, all the people that come to me for lessons, they're all of that mindset. They all got this telescope to look how far it is and they can't even, you know, hit the ball straight. And they try to be DeChambeau. There's the downside of the DeChambeau thing is because, you know, you've got, it would be like Steph Curry, you know, going onto the basketball and thinking you can do what he does. This is a trained athlete. DeChambeau has trained his, himself to do this. You can't do it without training yourself physically. Uh, just own up to the fact if you can get it out there, and all these people can now, 270 plus, if you can hit it down the middle, and there is a thing in itself, they tee the ball too high. If you want to hit it straight, tee it down by the ground, you'll hit it straight. If you need a ball, you know, under pressure, and I've had mm-hmm. to do that. Gary Player taught me that, put it really, really low. And the only thing you can do is hit it straight or cut it. You're not going to hook it. If you tee it high, you're going to hook it. Awesome. And, you know, I haven't been around the block, uh, as many blocks as you have in golf, but I've been around a few and, uh, and I'm learning. And this this is wonderful. So our listeners as well, learning, um, teaching us a lot about the playing of the game, but there's a lot to learn from you in terms of life and how you've lived your life yeah. and, and the extraordinary places life is taking you. Um, so you talked, you'd mentioned earlier, um, you know, you've been, you, you do have these gifts that, that people are attracted to that, um, that you are generous of spirit, that you have a charisma that, um, that you, in some, a lot of ways you feel on in my, in reading your story, it seems to me that you are in a lot of ways, unafraid or not as timid as the average person um that maybe that's how you find yourself in these interesting situations is that is is that true well i think it all came from my grandmother she called me the blue-eyed devil she was the most beautiful irish woman you've ever seen and she would always tell me when i went down there i'm talking about when i was seven or eight she would say it's an it's an amazing thing peter she said the more I give from my bank, there's more there. I just don't understand it. And that kind of stuck with me. And in the worst of times, um, you know, if I had a coffee or if I, I, if I could afford a, uh, something, I would try to give something because I knew that was like priming the pump. You know, when you go to a well, you've got to prime the pump. They have a little... Uh, jug there and you have to first prime the pump to make the pump start if you if you steal that the pump won't work so it seems to be in life the more you give giving is living and living is giving if you have that way of life it seems that the universe buoys you i may be wrong i may be right but i definitely believe that giving is living and living is giving you've tr- you trust the universe yes it seems like you do. One, and it's yeah, one thousand percent, yeah. And it's taking care of you. Yes, it has. Um over and so, over again. Yeah. And that's um and, and speaking in generalities, I would say that the British being known as pragmatists, not as necessarily total optimists who would turn their hand life over to the universe and say, right. Take me where it might. Um right. but you do. And and I think that that's a great lesson 
for all of us listening. Well, I, um, I'm much I'm much more Irish than I'm British, so I, that, there that you may go. be. A, there you uh, go. Irish people are the most giving and loving, and I'm sure you've been over there. And uh, you know, it's uh, it's an honor to have that heritage of being Celtic. And all my friends on the tour were all wonderful, wonderful people, like Simon Hobday and John O'Leary and people like that, and uh, you know Eddie Polland. There was so Eamon Darcy. There were just so many great, great people that helped me and taught me about the game. It's a very difficult game because it's so broad. It covers volumes. I mean, you can, couldn't you? You could write from the beginning to the end of time about it. As, as I said, here I am at the end of my time learning the biggest secret that I could ever have had with golf. And but the other thing is, is a lot of people here, they, you know, they go to tailor-made and they, they get fitted and all that. But you can actually have a lot of fun in this game um, just with a few clubs that you pick up at the Home Depot, you know, or wherever you go for secondhand clubs. Yeah, it doesn't need, you don't need to be that sophisticated. You can have a lot of fun, four or five clubs. And that brings me back to... When I played with this young guy, 14-year-old, in Boulder, Colorado, in the middle of the winter, the pro there at the, uh, whatever that course is downtown, the, can't remember what it's called. Now, but anyway, um, he said, would you play with this young guy? And I did. I had like seven clubs and I beat him. I shot 69. He didn't want to say it, but he nearly did. He goes, oh, man, be there tomorrow. And then we, we, we went again and we tied. And then the last one, I think he beat me by one shot. But I was able to show that young man, not that you can check on this story. I'd be interested to know if he, he would own up to it. I showed him that, that low drill shot that Gary Player taught me. And he used it to great effect. In that way. And I said, you're going to win the Masters. He said, yes, eight. Jordan Spieth. So it's Jordan funny. Spieth. In the middle of nowhere, I meet this kid and I play with this kid. But there again, here, you know, seeking people. I, I know and I love Xander Shoffley and his family and his father. And you don't expect ever to meet those people, but you do. Yeah. Well, you have to be open to it. You have to kind of have, I, I imagine, you know, sort of yeah. have open arms to, to life and embrace what comes down the pipe. And um, And if you do, if you put good things out, like you said, into the universe, it comes back. Good things are coming back to yeah. you. Yeah. Um, all these folks in the story, there are so many names of fascinating people that have had huge roles in golf and and and, uh, and other things in life that have had a, 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 a that have been part of your story. Um, some of the best lessons that you've learned from them. You've talked about some of the golf lessons that you've learned from from the likes of of Gary player and, 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 and others. Yeah. Um, but some of these characters, what are the things that you've learned from them in terms of how you live your life? I think over and over again, it's the same theme is like you said, if you put out goodness, you'll get it back. And there are people out there. I could name them. I won't that are not particularly nice individuals. And now I'm sitting here talking to you those individuals of kind of like a balloon letting out air, you know, and they whizzes around in the sky and then drops, uh, they've disappeared. And they were selfish people, very selfish. 
And I've had a number of times, I, I think I played with uh, Bob Charles in a practice round at the Westchester Classic. I played in that, which was a great thrill because when I first came to America, I went there and told the locker room guys I was going to come there and win it. Well, I didn't, but they made a locker right next to Jack Nicholas, And I really thank those guys a long time ago now in at uh, Westchester Country Club, I think 76. And um, just Bob Charles, playing with Bob Charles, we played with somebody and he introduced me to the person and I put my hand out and the guy um, completely ignored me. Uh, I've met a couple people like that, but if you're talking about 10,000 people and you've met two people that were the or horses, whatever, that's pretty good odds. So there's only a couple of people like that I've ever met. And they were selfish people. So we talked a lot about what some of these, you know, these extraordinary names that have, you know, entered your life and that you've crossed paths with paths with and the impact that they've had on your golf. Um, what are some of those, the impact that they may have had on your life? Or when you think back, well, that, that, that's that advice or, um, that lesson that I got, um, from somebody, you know, had a, had that huge impact. Well, <clears throat> Gary player, <clears throat> of course, has been huge in my life as teaching me about life, not, not so much about golf, but life. And he told me when he went to Europe, and I'm thinking it had to be 56, John Jacobs and uh, who was the other guy? <clears throat> Peter Alice went over to him, I think, at the Swiss Open and told him to pack his bags and go back to uh, South Africa and get a club job because he wasn't going to make it in golf. Well, he was alone. He had very little money. In actual fact, he slept in a bunker, I think at St. Andrews, uh, with his waterproofs on because he didn't. So that affinity that I had hmm. with him, um, he, he recognized in me what he had in himself. And it's an inner burning desire. It's like uh, it's, it's gone out of me. The anger's gone out of me in golf because I no longer can do it, not to the level that I could. I, I, you know, I'm telling you how good I am. I'm, I'm pretty darn good now, but I'm not like I was because I had that anger in me, which, which there's a levels in professional golf, as Ben Hogan has talked about it, there's a level of being nice and kind and playing with people. That's not professional golf. Up there, professional golf, you've got to be a killer to make it. And uh, Gary told me all about that. And uh, I wouldn't want to play like that anymore. That's one way of playing. But you know, Hogan was the ultimate. And it's did you play with it? Sorry. You, did you play with that? Did you play with anger? Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. That's, that's, what, that's what made me keep going. You couldn't keep going. I did it for 15 years with no money. I went all over the world. You know, I, I, I had a fourth place finish in the South African PGA in 1969. I start, I'm the same guy, again, the no-hoper, the guy that's not qualifying in Africa. I start with a 78. Next day, I shoot a course record because a guy, a British guy, had asked me what I'd scored, and I knew he's, he had a better score. That's how they do it. You know, they niggle you. I knew he'd had a 72, and I'd had 78, and he was basking in that. And then I shot a course record, 67, 69, 69, and finished fourth. 
ahead of Bernard Gallagher and a lot of, you know, a couple behind Peter Oosthuis. Uh Yeah, anger. That's what feeds it. A chip on your shoulder, I guess they call I, it. I probably, yeah. Or, yeah, you're, you're uh, yeah. Um, I wonder who's playing, who today plays with that kind of anger. Uh, because you maybe, look maybe at a lot of today's don't... players and you'd say, yeah. They have nothing to be angry about. <laughs> right, right. right? They, yeah, maybe uh, between, maybe it's not know. a part of the agenda anymore. I don't know. Uh, they've talked in the, the, the New York Times about fear. They did a big article on fear. Uh, maybe that's closely related with anger. I don't know. I'm teaching, by the way, I'm teaching a young boy now. He's 18. He won the gold medal at the 2021 um, Olympics for skateboarding. And uh, he's absolutely phenomenal. I've been uh, teaching him for about, not not really hands-on teaching, but just being around him for three months. And he, he's shooting three over now at the, the GOAT. And his, uh, his name is Palmer, Keegan Palmer. He's gonna, if he wants to be a pro, he can be a pro. That's how good he is. Wow. Outstanding. Yeah. You were mentioning fear. And talking about how it seems like you've lived a lot of your life without fear, but there are moments, certainly. Oh, um, God, yes. Well, without, I, I, without fear, but but there, there are moments in your story where that sound pretty darn scary. Uh, can you think of a time when you were the most afraid or maybe in the most danger? Yes, I, I was the most afraid. Uh, I was the most afraid when I first came to America. And uh, I'm at New York Airport. Again, very little money. And uh, the cab driver, just the most wonderful guy from Jamaica, um, he said, you come back and stay at my house. Well, I mean, come on. Uh, and he, he lived, you know, he lived in this amazing place uh, near to Rye. And he fed me and um, he took me around in his taxi. I, I, again, just a miracle. I was very afraid then, but the most afraid I've ever been was in South Africa about 1972, I think it was. Uh, Simon Hobday had said to me, I see you Beamsy up in, uh, you know, Johannesburg. I said, see you. So this was Sunday and I waved goodbye to him and I got dropped off on the road, Route 1, to hitchhike from Cape Town to Johannesburg. And this truck kept on going past me and I wanted, I, I couldn't get a lift, but eventually I did get a lift. And that's going to be the name of my book is um, Victoria West. The, the most lonely turnoff in the world. I'm out in the middle of nothing, 500 miles from anywhere. And I've actually talked to Gary about that because his farm is another 500 miles. If I'd known, I would have tried to get to him. But anyway, I thought that Maybe um, Victoria West, in my limited view in life, was probably 30 miles down the road. It was about 500. Anyway, this truck, they stopped. And I guess they, you know, they felt sorry for me. And I got my big tournament bag. It was a flatbed with wood. So I climbed up. I got my golf bag there. Then we're going along, and they turn off to Kimberley. And that didn't feel too good for me. And uh, we got to Kimberley and the sun, they stopped and the sun was going down. And I realized that I was there to be killed. And uh, I, I don't know 
I don't know why I didn't jump down. It was quite a long way. I don't know why. But anyway, I waited and I prayed that the sun would go up and not go down. And eventually I heard a scratching on that side of the truck. And I could hear somebody that side. Now I knew they were coming at me. And this guy comes up and he's got a Coca-Cola. You want a Coca-Cola, boss? And I thought, well, that's a ruse. And the other guy came up with a hamburger. That was the most fear I've ever had. And they took me all the way to the golf tournament in Johannesburg. And there was Simon Hobday. And he said, because I was just absolutely red, he said, Beamsy, did you go to the beach? And I said, no, because I'd been out waiting there for like seven hours in the sun at that junction at Victoria West. And uh, so that was pretty scary. I'm glad I don't have to do that again. Wow. And you live to tell the tale. That That's and that's one of the stories that's briefly hinted at in Golfer's Journal 18. Yes. There are a few other ones as well. Um, how did you get involved with the mafia? Um, I, are you allowed to tell us? <laughs> well, I probably won't live, but I have to say, <laughs> I have to say they were some of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. They were wonderful to me. And, um, uh, Tommy Jacobs, the guy that lost the Masters, and his brother, John, both both good friends. But Tommy was the head pro at uh, La Costa, and I went there to get lessons from him. And he, it was always wonderful because he'd take my money and then take it behind his back and then give it back to me. He was a very, very kind man. He taught me a lot. And uh, anyway, um, Tommy said... Um, I've got a match for you. You're going to play with this gentleman against some other people. So I went down to the driving range. I was all excited about it. And I went up to this particular guy and I said, sir, um, I'm here to play with you. Uh, and he goes, no, don't know who you are. No. I was, I was quite shocked. So I went back to the caddy shed and waited around. And eventually he came up to the first tee and the other guys were there. And he shouted over, he said, is there anybody there that can play? And that, that was the way you did it. You understand? You had to do the protocol. You couldn't just go up to a person in power and say, hey, I'm, no. So I played with them and I shot 71-71 off the back tees at La Costa. It was a monster course in those days. And I won. I got paid $300 and I'd never seen a $100 bill. And I later found out that the betting they'd won between 750,000 and 800,000, my team had won from wow. those guys. They'd come out from Chicago to take this guy down uh, in golf. Oh. And uh, it was a big, big match all over the country. They were betting on it all over the country. And from that, I was sent to play in the Nevada Open and I was put up at the, um, I think it was the Dunes Hotel. And I was so naive. I didn't, you know, I didn't, I had this beautiful room. I didn't realize I could go and I was given the run of the place. You can go and eat. So I, I kept to the breakfast place. And this big guy came in and said, um, you want to play Kino? And I go, no. And he said, well, I think you should play Kino. I said, oh, okay, okay, I'll play Kino. Um, he just picked the numbers. I, I didn't know how to play. I said, five, six, seven, eight, nine, whatever. And uh, how much? $3, whatever it was. And he came back. The numbers came up. He came back with the money and gave me the money. So it was pretty, pretty amazing place. 
another amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there's, yeah, I don't believe in coincidences. So, um, but interesting thing after interesting thing and, and, and taking you to what happened at Pebble Beach. You, you're teaching at Pebble Beach, but were you ever hired by them? What what was the deal there? <clears throat> well, um, very, very, very interesting story there. My wife and I went to live there and we lived there. We got a house and I would sort of go through the the back entrance because we were on it. And actually, I'd I'd. Uh, many times I'd go and play a couple of holes at Cyprus because we weren't far from that. And I, I went into the pro shop one day and I, I had made myself believe I actually was a teacher there, which I wasn't. And the woman there who was called the Black Spider said, uh, who are you? I said, oh, well, I'm, I'm Peter Beams. I teach here. She said, I've never heard of you. And... Uh, Anyway, I, I don't know what, I can't, it's all sort of blank from there, but all I know is I became a good friend of uh, Paul Spengler, who's the head guy. And eventually I ended up, when the Japanese bought it, I became the teacher of one of the top Japanese guys and he came and lived with me and they paid me a lot of money to teach him. And that was kind of how I got into it. Wow. The, um, you've seen a lot of golf. What's still, and you, you've taught it and yep. teach it and mm -hmm. still doing a lot in golf. So yep. what gets you the most excited about golf? What still gets you, gets your, uh, gets your blood boiling, gets you fired up about golf? Well, I love, I love waiting for those days when you're all powerful and you really hit the ball exactly the way you do, but it doesn't happen very often. I would say the spacing in between is probably four or five days. But when it comes, it's like, aha, this is the day. And it's all to do with what I said. It's all to do with that, that speed, that rhythm. If you've got that rhythm, you can do it. But if you revert to that rip, rip it and grip it, which John Daly was great at it, um, I don't think that's for normal people i think that you've got to be a pretty special person to be able to be like greg norman and by the way greg norman had a little bit of that flail going back but greg norman was probably one of the greatest straight drivers i've ever seen other for other than the guy that i played golf with yesterday griffin house who's a famous nashville singer uh i've never seen anybody hit the ball like this uh this griffin house unbelievable Absolutely. Shot two under. He hadn't played for six weeks. Do you just, do these people just find you or do you find them? How's it, how did, <laughs> do you, do you, you're, are you hanging around at, um... well, you know, I, I have to pay a lot of respects to John Ashworth. I mean, without John uh, and uh, Jeff Cunningham, um, you know, I knew John when he was 17 years old and he was the ball boy at La Costa. And he told me, that whatever lesson I was working on the walkthrough, whatever lesson I gave him, he became number one and, and never played better golf and has never played as good golf since. And then we re reunited at La Costa and his kindness, I'm not going to tabulate it because he'll be upset. Uh, oh, I mean, if anybody was the poster child for giving his living a living, it's him. But I was able to pay back in a little way by um, getting the, you know, retaining Goat Hill for the general people. And he's, John's done an amazing job 
at turning that in to it will be eventually an Augusta of the short courses on the West Coast. It's a great spot. Can people find you there if they're looking for you? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Because I'm, I'm sure a number of folks would like to learn this move. Um, take a lesson with the professor. Uh, now, something else they probably like to learn from you. I would as well. I mean, listen, reading your story, it was really inspirational. Um, your you know, your approach to life, sort of a devil may care or trusting in the universe to, to put you in the right place and that something will come along um, yeah. and, and you'll be taken care of. And that, yeah. um, so I, I do wonder, um, are you, a, are you a religious person, a spiritual person? Oh, um, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I've seen how would how... you, de- and how would you describe that to someone else? Um, the role that plays in your life. Well, the, you know, the book that I wrote, The Boy Who Wrote Clouds, it's kind of controversial at the end because God is the dog. And two uh, young, I don't know whether you call them priests or devotees, but anyway, they did a whole Greek number on me of telling me that, uh, you know, this, uh, this was against all. Anyway, cut a long story short, they put a illuminated crucifix around my neck which i haven't taken off i thought that was very kind of they thought i needed it but my philosophy is i think in in every religion there's tremendous good Uh, i don't think you know i mean we because we live where we do you know jesus christ is is the one and without that you can't enter into heaven um i'm not going to argue that i'm going to say that i believe in jesus but also I believe in a lot of the other philosophies of life. So it's, it's a little bit broader. So I'm not putting any religion down, but I do know there's a heaven. I know that because I've seen it. And uh, I know that kindness begets kindness. So what's kind, going yeah. on? Yes, what's going on right now will be repaid in full. You can't do that. It, it may take 20 years but you will not last on this planet doing bad. You can't. Gandhi said it. It has its time. Evil has its time, but unfortunately it doesn't last. My father was chosen by Churchill because he was Irish to be one of the prosecuting attorneys or on the, not a prosecuting attorney, but on the prosecutorial team at Nuremberg. And the stories that he told, you know, he said, this will never happen again. Well, poor dad, he was wrong. Uh, but that evil only lasts for a, a while. And then it's it's kind of like a pimple. It comes up again. It has to be squashed and taken out. That's the world that we live in. Now, why, does it, why it is, I don't know. But it is there. You've seen heaven. Yes. Tell me about it. It was no particular day. It was no particular hour. It was... Um, it was going into the morning hours, I'm saying it's probably one o'clock in the morning. Uh, I woke up and I saw this speck in the window. It was bright. And I went to look at it and it was so small. But for a very, very short time, I, I saw through it to an open space so massive. It's hard to describe. 
It was so massive and so peaceful and so beautiful and so many colors. And I think that's what you get if you were in my studio, the colors. That's the big thing in the Boy Road Clouds. So, yes, I saw it. And uh, I have no allusion to the fact that there is there is a better place than this. My goodness. Wow. Um, it was just a, it was a pimple. It was so small. Yeah. But but it was so small, it was so big, and you could see, you could see through to another side. It's like you know, mm. like a curtain was drawn for a fraction of a second. Didn't last very long. It's a beautiful. I I I love that. I had a professor who used to talk about the whole universe fitting on the head of a pin, and that being a theme in sort of different literatures that we talk about, and 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 sort of um, we can go. Wait, I don't want to go too far down that yeah. path, but yeah. but this notion of finding the infinite. And yes. seeing a glimpse of it is yes. uh, is a powerful, uh, impossible, yet powerful and amazing thing. So and the, the, the great thing about golf is it presents us all the time with most of the good of the world. Mm -hmm. Don't you think? I don't think there's a lot of bad that comes out of golf. A lot of good. A lot of good. Yeah. And um, and a lot of those and a lot of opportunities for those moments to experience something bigger than yourself. Yes, exactly. And you've experienced a lot of them um, between the people that have walked into your life, between the situations you found yourself in and things that have come along to to carry you along to the next adventure. Or or honestly, it's not just adventures that you're having. You're giving a lot of gifts to people along the way, whether it's your knowledge, um, your generosity of spirit. Um, you're giving us a gift by talking us uh, to us here today. What would you say to people who aren't able to live life with the same optimism or courage or open-mindedness or willingness that you do. Um, you know, there are a lot of us, especially coming out of a pandemic, that are anxious, that are afraid, that are closed up, closed off to the world. Uh, that's the opposite of how you've lived, and you've been rewarded for that. Uh, what would you say to people uh, in that situation? That if you're going through dark times, you're a very lucky person. Because I can tell you, I might have gone through a hundred of those that you're going through. Now, I don't know whether it was Tiger Woods said it. I may be misquoting him. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Tiger, if I am. But I think Tiger alluded to the fact that it's the person that can take the most pain that succeeds. And I think that's probably in there somewhere with me, that if you can stand up, if you can stay in that flame long enough, it will burn itself out and you'll go through to the next level. You've burned the dross off. So what I say to people that have got fear or that, you know, money problems, my goodness, I can give you a lecture on that. Um, having nothing is a great place to be because you only have one place to go and that's up. You won't stay in that place. That's not the universe. The universe abhors, abhors a vacuum. It wants you to succeed. Every living person on this planet is a part of the cog, is a part of everybody. Uh, you can't be a Tiger Woods without 10,000 people behind you turning the machinery. You can't be a Seth Curry without the teammates. So, if, if you view yourself as nothing, 
that's completely wrong because every human being, every person with a spark of life inside them is as important as, and Jack Nicholas would say this, as Jack Nicholas. And by the way, um, thank you, Jack. If Jack's watching this, thank you so much. Uh, I, I can't believe what you did for me. Uh, some about a year or so, maybe longer, I had got two books and I sent them to Jack Nicholas with a return um, envelope to send to John Ashworth for his birthday. Well, I never saw them. And like John, a great story with John um, cursing Bill Murray because he hadn't heard from him. Uh, Bill Murray had lost his telephone. Um, but Jack, I'm going, God damn it. I really believed in you, Jack, and you let me down. And I'm sitting in John's office, and I see these two books. They were very familiar. There you were. Jack Nicholas had signed them both. So, Jack, thank you so much. I've met you on a number of occasions. You're one of the great people in this on this planet. You've helped so many people. You helped me. You were always kind to me when you met me. And uh, so I'm just saying, hang on. Uh, know that the sun will come up again. Indeed, it will. I can't think yeah. of a, a sort of uh, I can't think of a better note to leave things on. But I do have to ask you: How's the book coming? What's going on? You know, the story was written a while ago. Um, yes. Any progress on that front? Because it left us. <coughs> the story certainly left us all excited about. We want to read this. The okay. The, so uh, so uh, we in New York we did the audio book with sounds and doors opening and really you know, all, yes the whole thing and <clears throat> matt janella who who works just around the corner uh he said he'd love me to do the audio book for his son bandon and um so that's where we're going to do we're going to record it here and then knit the two the two of those audio books together so that's the beginning it's out um being looked at by harper collins and uh disney has intimated it's interested, uh, but nothing's firm until there's money in the bank. Uh, mm-hmm. Golf Channel wants me to do this six episode thing of going across country with cameras and visiting different places. And it's great. Uh, I listen to everybody, but nothing ever happens until somebody puts a check in your in your bank. There's no doubt about that. Uh, yeah. Anyone that works yeah. in the creative, yeah. any creative field knows. And I, uh, you know, to all that. those people, uh, I'm ready. I'm here. But I will be leaving the 25th or 27th of March, no matter what. It doesn't matter to me. <laughs> you know, they can make up their minds. They could chase me. Well, somebody needs to give you a camera and follow you back across the country uh, on your way back to New York because of the people that that you find. Uh, the yes. people that gravitate yes. into your universe. Yes. Um, you have that magnetic pull and there are people like that. And uh, you are at the top of that list uh, for me, for sure. So Peter, I can't thank you enough for the time. Fantastic. Um, thank really you. Really nice to you. meet you. Wonderful to meet you. Um, hopefully our paths cross, you know, who knows, give it knowing your <laughs> the way your life goes. I'm sure we're going to meet at some point um, and, uh, and can share some more. Would you, would you say hello to my friend Xander when you see him at, uh, the PGA? Yeah, I'll be at the masters. I will tell Xander, uh, I will find, I'll find him there and I'll tell him that Peter sends sends his his best. He's he'll probably win this year. All right. I'll, you know what? I'm not going to bet against you, so I'm not going to bet against Xander. 
Uh, more great advice. Peter, thank you so much. Have an awesome day. Thank you. Bye.